Word up, film fans. I don't know why I use the term word up, but there we go. It's done. It's out there. I can't take it back. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you are safe and sound. I feel like I am definitely uh, coming out the other side of the dreaded COVID. I'm on my way today up to the homeland to host this year's BAFTA Scotland Awards, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, so if you are listening to this either on the 19th or the 20th of November, then um, make sure you, jo- you join us on BAFTA Scotland socials from 4.30. And then there is a highlight show on BBC Scotland from 9.30 on Saturday night. BBC Scotland is also available on uh, iPlayer, on Sky, on Freeview, on Virgin Media. So just search for BBC Scotland. You can find the highlight show up there. I hope you enjoy. I'm very much looking forward to it. But our latest guest on soundtracking, I should get to the podcast surely by now, is, well, he's many things, actor, songwriter, playwright, producer, rapper, and now director, Lynn manuel Miranda. It's not fair, really, is it? And he is the most down-to-earth man ever. I loved chatting to him. Now, he's probably most well-known, although he is very well-known, but he's probably most well-known for writing the script, music and lyrics for Hamilton, which has been a global phenomenon since its Broadway premiere in 2015. Now, if you haven't seen Hamilton yet, um, it's available on Disney+. Plus. They filmed it in Broadway with most of the original cast and I watched it a couple of weeks ago before I interviewed Lynn and I thought it was an amazing interpretation of this. You really feel like you're in a theatre watching it. It's brilliant. So if you haven't seen it yet, you know, it's hard to get tickets. It's expensive to get to the theatre. It's a wonderful opportunity to see it and experience and really just be overwhelmed by the power of what he's created. So go and check it out. But since then, he's done all manner of wonderful things, including the songs for Moana, one of my favourite Disney movies. I'm going to do it. You're welcome. Shiny. He talks about that. It's very funny. Now, at the moment, you can hear his music in a brand new uh, Disney animation called Encanto, which is fantastic. And why not see his directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom, on Netflix. It's about the life of composer Jonathan Larson, who brought us Rent, who is played by Andrew Garfield, Hello Award nominations coming your way. Um, Anyway, plenty more on that shortly, but first a word from our friends at Wine52. Pretty good timing because I recently rewatched Sideways the other night, Alexander Payne's brilliant film from 2004. So we have a little early Christmas gift for you. How do you fancy trying some incredible top quality wines for free? Mm -hmm. Well, let me introduce you to Wine 52, a monthly wine discovery club. And instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine 52 only selects the very best of the best. Their expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them to your door. Now, I have always had a slight romantic notion of knowing lots about wine and travelling around vineyards in the world and having a greater appreciation of wine, the regions, the flavours. I've got to say, Wine52 has given me an opportunity to, to do some of that. So how does it work? Well, each month they send members three wines, which you can customise to your taste by choosing from a case of white, red or a mixture. And they are so sure that you love their wines that you can grab your first case completely free. 
All you need to do is go to wine52.com forward slash sound. That's wine52.com forward slash sound and cover the postage costs of £5.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. It also includes their magazine Glug, see what they did there, which brings you the story of the producers and insight about wine travel from each region. Now, after your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club, but there is no minimum commitment. You can try it, see what you think, and if it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So, that's wine52.com forward slash sound to claim your case today. Wine52.com forward slash sound. And so, to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's got plenty of things on the go, as I mentioned. And we'll begin with a cue from Germain Franco's score for Encanto. This is entitled, Hola, Casita. Manuel, thank you so much for sparing the time to to chat to us. You are an extraordinary guest to have on this podcast, um, and it's kind of hard to know where to start with you. But I'm going to start with Encanto, but go prior to that and talk about Moana because I love that film. I think it might be one of my favourite Disney films ever. To be honest, um, there was just so much about it I loved. But I was interested to ask you specifically about that in that how or if the songs change much from from when you originally write them to when they're cast? Uh, no, actually, I tend to find I love writing for actors. Um, it's yeah. my favorite thing to do. And it eliminates a lot of the guesswork in terms of where I'm going. Uh, because if I know the voice I'm writing for, then I go, oh, great. You know, it's, I don't think it's an accident that there was many more drafts of songs for Moana before Moana was cast than after we had Ali'i. And then I, once I had her voice in my head, it yeah. became way easier. welcome I knew we had the rock and so the first thing I did was you know I'm a wrestling fan so I <laughs> went and watched uh, a super cut of videos I found on YouTube when the rock would sing to taunt 
his fellow wrestlers. He would like pull out a ukulele and be like, I can't wait to get out of Chicago. <laughs> and, and Chicago would go, boo! And I learned sort of a sense of his range, like, okay, it was a baritone range. But You're Welcome came, literally the hook came out of the fact that it was The Rock, because I think The Rock is one of the more naturally charming beings on earth. And only he could get away with a lyric like, you're welcome for everything and still have you love him. <laughs> um, you know, if you give that to Gaston, he's the villain of the piece. But you give it to The Rock and you're like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I see what's happening, yeah. You're face to face with greatness and it's strange. You don't even know how you feel. It's adorable. Well, it's nice to see that humans never change. Open your eyes, let's begin. Yes, it's really me, it's Maui, breathe it in. I know it's a lot, the hair, the pod. When you're staring at a demigod. Well, anyway, let me say you're welcome. You're welcome. What a wonderful world you know. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, you're welcome. welcome. Well, come to think of it, I gotta go. So um, that was that was fun. And also because of the research we'd done on Maui and how in Pacific Island culture to an island, you'd find slightly different variations on the same Maui stories. I knew the lyrical content would be all of the great myths um, and all of the great stories that Maui originates, him getting fire, him creating coconuts. And he's got a lot to say you're welcome for. Um, but the attitude is purely uh, writing for the rock and, and it was similar with uh, jermaine clement uh in writing shiny you know i all i knew was that we had this giant crab but david bowie had passed away about three months prior um and then they told me we were getting jermaine clement and i i actually knew him a little a million years ago my hip-hop improv group freestyle of supreme opened for flight of the concords at the aspen comedy festival and I knew he had a killer Bowie. They had that amazing David Bowie sort of song. And, and so I was like, oh, I can write a Bowie tune here. Because you have to understand, like, I was born in 1980. My first encounter with David Bowie as the villain from Labyrinth. He's like the uber villain, like an incredibly charming and sexy villain. Uh, so I was like, mm -hmm. let me get my Bowie on uh, because I know Jermaine can do it and it will be really something special. So... In a lot of cases, the actor is what unlocks the, the song for me. Well, Tomatoa hasn't always been this glam. I was a drab little crab once. Now I know I can be happy as a clam. Because I'm beautiful, baby. Did your granny say, listen to your heart? Be who you are on the inside. I need three words to tear her argument apart Your granny lied I'd rather be shiny Like a treasure from a sunken pirate wreck Scrub the deck and make it look shiny I will sparkle like a wealthy woman's neck Just a sec, don't you know Fish are dumb, dumb, dumb They chase anything that glitters Beginners 
Oh, and here they come, come, come to the brightest thing that glitters. Mm, fish dinner. I just love free food. And you look like seafood. Hey, crab cake! I'm back. It's Maui time! What do you say, little buddy? Giant hawk? Coming up. We, I, I should tell people that I was lucky enough to just host a masterclass with you. It was, it was absolutely, the feedback from the students is just incredible. So thank you so much for that. And you, um, you know, you said that with, with from Moana to them working on Encanto, you know, were kind of like, you were kind of give me, a, let me do the Latino story. Let me kind of, you know, bring so much genuine authenticity to a, a Latino story for Disney and which you have done. What was the catalyst for the story? What was the, the seed? Where did the seed for Encanto come from in terms of, you know, that story? Yeah, it's several. It's, it's one, as a collective creative team, we really wanted to do something about family and get the complexity of a family up on, up on screen. Um, we were really in deciding to do a Latino theme story. We were really inspired by magical realism particularly in literature um, of like um, Isabel Allende and um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. That brings you to Colombia um, and, and landed us uh, in Colombia as this crossroads and a great setting for the film. But again, like you think of 100 Years of Solitude, the incredible complexity in those family dynamics. And it's, you know, uh, over the course of, of a century. And for us, that was really inspiring. So the, the magic springs naturally from a place where magical realism is a part of the culture and, and fabric of the region. So then it becomes this mix of research and imagination. Um, and mm. that's the really fun part. You know, the, it's Colombian musicians all the way down the line. As I mentioned in our, in our master class, um, I really fought for an all Latin music team. So Jermaine Franco is uh, an incredible uh, Mexican songwriter who, who did the score. Mike Elizondo, who I'd worked with a little bit on Hamilton stuff, uh, to be the producer, um, because he's the most, um, I think, just like eclectic producer I know. That guy produced an Eminem album and a Fiona Apple album um, and everything in between. And so I just knew he could handle anything I would throw at him. So that was, you know, the, the goal was always to kind of lean into the diversity of this family. And by diversity, I really mean like musical diversity and ethnic diversity. Um, and then create the most compelling story we could. When you when you when you're starting to think about creating music and song for for something like Encanto, do you separate lyric and melody, or do they do they work together with you in terms of when you're thinking about what you're going to write? I think with Encanto, again, we were I, I didn't write 
any music until we had gone down to Colombia and really listened to a lot of different music from different regions. But for me, the, the fun is always finding the heartbeat of the character. And I'll take it any way it comes. If it comes in a melody, I'll take that. If it comes with a, a lyrical idea, uh, I'll take that. I, I can tell you the first song I wrote for it is the opening number. I knew we had lots of characters. I knew it was very important to delineate them and distinguish them for the audience. Um, so I had a very clear, the structure almost came first. It was Mirabelle's going to tell us who everyone is in this family, how they're related, and what they do. And we'll just start from Abuela all the way on down the line. And that is it's fun puzzle work. And then I also, so I knew it was going to move quickly. Um, and I knew that um, the accordion is so front and center in Colombian music that the idea of our narrator, who is someone without special gifts, just rocking the hell out of an accordion um, as she tells us this story would be really fun. So again, that answers a lot of the questions about like the structure of the tune yeah. and, and the sound of the tune. And then the next thing is like finding, finding the structure that allows for a lot of lyric because we've got a lot of story to tell inside it. And then there's fun stuff inside it too. Like there's a line where she goes, well, anyway, Felix married Pepa, Augustine married Julieta. That's how Abuela became an Abuela Madrigal. Like, that's a lot of story in one line. And the way I thought about it was like, this is not actually um, a verse or a chorus. It's a horn break. Um, you know, because if you yeah. actually played that as a horn line, it'd be like, dang, 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 dang. So I was like, here's a horn break in which she, she gets from one generation to the next. So that's really fun because I'm, I'm always sort of thinking about Latin music structure. And I was like, well, this doesn't fit. So we'll put it on the horn break. <laughs> Welcome to the family, Madrigal. The home of the family, Madrigal. Hey, coming through. I know it sounds a bit fantastical and magical, but I'm part of family, Madrigal. You guys fell in love with family, Madrigal. And now they're part of the family, Madrigal. See at the Felix Mary Peppa. Congratulations on your feature film directorial debut as well with Tick Tick Boom. Oh, so good. I'm a fan of Andrew Garfield beforehand. I just, I, I mean, do you mind if we talk a little bit about casting him as as as, as yeah, Jonathan sure. in this? Because I know that this this production is really really important to you. Um, and I wonder whether that as well kind of. I don't know, was there a fear going into this or was there a kind of let me at it kind of thing, you know, in terms of because it had such a connection with you? Uh, both. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, the last song of that is Fear or Love. Uh, don't say the answer. Mm. And it's a lot of both. Why do we play with fire? Why do we run our finger through the flame? Why do we leave our hand on the stove? Although we know we're in for some pain, oh, why do we refuse to hang the light when the streets are dangerous? Why does it take an accident before the truth? Gets through to us Cages or wings Which do you prefer? Ask the birds Fear or love, baby Don't say the answer Action 
emotions speak louder than You know, fear because it's my first film and I feel enormous responsibility to get it right because it's about the person who got me started writing musicals in the first place. But no fear with Andrew. Um, I saw him, I, I already knew that I might be working on this movie and then I saw him in a production of Angels in America at the National Theatre. Me Theater. too. I saw it in London. Oh. I mean, so, so then you felt the way I did, which is like, that guy can do anything. You know, I spent the day at the National. You go and you watch part one, then you eat dinner, and then you watch part two. It's like a day. And You're like, is, how did he do that? How did he remember and, all and that? He, oh, it's, not even, it's like, but also like give all of himself. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just his entire heart is on that stage. Um, and I knew I needed a stage beast before mm -hmm. I needed anything. Um, it's, it's a bonus that he's a movie star already, but he's just an incredible stage actor and I was like that's my Jonathan when I saw him in there because I just thought he was so incredibly vulnerable and open as prior Walter in that production I didn't know if he could sing but I felt like he could do anything and that's that was the beginning of it this is the life of Boba Bobo this is the life of Boba Bobo this is the life of Boba Bobo Bohemia Showers in the kitchen, there might be some soap. Dishes in the sink, brush your teeth if you can cope. Toilets in the closet, you better hope there's a light bulb in there. That's today. Revolving door roommates, prick up your ears. 14 people in just four years. Ed and Max and Jonathan and Carolyn and Carrie. David Tim, no Tim was just a guest from June to January. Margaret, Lisa, David, Susie, Stephen, Joe, and Sam. And Elsa, the bill collector's dream of still is on the lamb. Don't forget the neighbors, Michelle and Gay. Alright, your family, then her family. Hey. The time is flying and everything is dying. I thought by now I'd have a dog, a kid, and wife. The ship is sort of sinking, so let's start drinking. Before we start thinking, this is the life. This is the life of Bobo Bobo. -bo -bo. This is the life of Bobo Bobo. -bo -bo -bo. This is the life of Bobo Bobo. -bo -bo -bo. Bohemia. Bohemia. One more time. Bohemia. Bobo Bobo. -bo -bo. I believe there was a a mutual friend involved in you discovering that he could sing? A massage therapist who I am seeing tonight. Although massage is misleading because that guy's forearms are like getting run over with a concrete mixer. Um, <laughs> massage implies some sort of relaxation. No relaxation happens when you are with Greg Miele. He's there to punch <laughs> the knots out of your neck so you can continue to do eight shows a week um, or continue to do your junket, <laughs> as it were. Um, so yeah, so I knew that we, I knew that Greg, who is uh, um, our, our mutual friend, worked on Andrew too, because Andrew was doing Angels uh, and I was doing, I guess I was doing Hamilton at the time. And I said, uh, can Andrew Garfield, do you know if Andrew Garfield can sing? Because again, like you're in your underwear and he's beating you up. Um, <laughs> he sees us at our most vulnerable. Um, and he was like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, he told Andrew, I hope you can sing because I told Lin-Manuel Miranda you could. You know, I had a vote of confidence from Greg and uh, and Andrew said, if I have enough prep time, I can do anything you need me to do um, in that very confident way. And he was as good as his word. Yeah, it's amazing for you in terms of, though, working out how you would make this story yours. 
you know, in terms of there's there's obviously and you were in a production of it, weren't you? At what one point were you in? Yeah. So, yeah, but, it was a very significant production for me because it was um, the summer of 2014. So it was the year before Hamilton began and actually about three months before we started uh, four months before we started rehearsals off Broadway. Um, so I, I was still working on that. And it was with two of the most significant people in my life from my past and my future. It was with Karen Olivo, who was my uh, co-star in In the Heights, uh, and Leslie Odom Jr., who would go on to be my co-star in Hamilton. And it was exactly between those two projects. Um, so it was a really personal, joyous two weeks just unlocking Jonathan's work in that. But I never felt a responsibility to make it personal to me. Mm -hmm. My responsibility was to make Jonathan Larson's dream movie of this show. Um, and that was always, it was WW, you know, uh, JLD. <laughs> um, what would Jonathan Larson do? And from using music that he'd written for other projects to create the score throughout the films so that we could say score by Jonathan Larson uh, nice. in the end credits of this. And it's incredibly detailed work. I mean, there's a, there's a moment where you see Michael and John driving in a car and you hear kind of a radio news theme. That's a CNN jingle that John wrote for CNN that CNN never bought. It's, wow. it's like that level detail. Like some of the, like when they're on the roof, when he's on the roof talking to Susan, um, there's like this kind of techno song that he wrote playing in the background. It's scored by John, with the exception of the songs in the party, it's all Larson's music. But that being said, you're making so many decisions faster than you can make decisions that it can't help but become incredibly personal because your own unconscious is guiding it. I'll never forget the first person I played the rough cut for was my uh, my best writer friend, Kiara, who lives on my block. She lives three buildings that way. And um, I said, Kiara, I have a rough cut and she will be my friend for life because all she said was, I'm on my way. <laughs> and she just ran down the block to come watch the rough cut of it. and. The first opening sequence happens and you see Jonathan Larson's apartment and she turns to me and she goes, Lynn, that's your room. And I went, what do you mean? She goes, that's exactly what your room looked like when you were 29 years old. And I was like, oh, fuck, this room is so personal. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of kind of crashed at me all at once because little decisions like putting the futon on the floor, like there was just like, it is this weird double vision of, I know what it is like to be a starving songwriter and my experience can help but bleed into that yeah. movie um you know so shots of there's an overhead shot of jonathan like spooning his keyboard as the first thing he sees in the morning that's my room <laughs> um but it's also jonathan's room well i guess that that's the i think that's why you connect with it so much because it's it's his story but told through your eyes and obviously there's so much i imagine there's quite a lot of of your experiences of, you know, of, of getting that break with your, you know, with your productions in his story as well, you know, sort of like-minded stories to tell. Yeah, all of it. I just, I just felt like there wasn't an angle to which I could not relate to this yeah. thing. And I think the, the other thing I, I brought to it, because Jonathan was incredibly angry when he wrote that first draft. <laughs> he wrote that out of no one producing Superbia. And I think the my only responsibility was to give equal weight and humanity to some of those other characters you know I don't think it's a mistake to want to get a job that gives you health insurance <laughs> I don't think it's a mistake to um, if you're a dancer go somewhere else and dance because dance you know you don't have to be in New York City to be an artist 
Um, yeah. Those aren't wrong decisions. Um, so I really wanted to, with with the sort of twin choices of Michael and Susan, give those choices their weight and humanity, and like I, you know, and and give them a little more balance than maybe Jonathan did because he was writing so specifically from his perspective. I think the casting is brilliant across the board in it, and and particularly Bradley Whitford as Sondheim. I just think is yeah. I love that bit of casting. It's just, it's so, it's, I don't know why, but I just love it. I just think it's, it's inc- isn't he, awesome. isn't incredible. It's and so also good. you have to understand, and the second time you watch this, you will appreciate that the aspiring songwriters in that room are all the best songwriters I know. Stephen Schwartz is there. Mark Shaman is there. Jason Robert Brown, Shana Taub, Janine Tesori. The list goes on. But all this to say, Poor Bradley Whitford is doing Sondheim for a room full of people who actually know Sondheim. <laughs> no pressure. So tough room. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was it was the last it was the last day of filming too. And so and Bradley was working on Handmaid's Tale. I couldn't get him until the very end of my shoot. Um, wow. So I sent him the documentary Six by Sondheim, which is just two hours of footage of Sondheim holding forth across the decade. It was like. Just I, I just trusted him. It was like this Hail Mary pass of like, well, you're one of the best actors and I know you'll have a good Sondheim. And and he came back and it was just, it's just a can. Um, so good. And then, yeah, it's really wonderful what he's doing there. When you, when you, when Hamilton pops into your head or you mention Hamilton in a, in a sentence, what's, what's the feeling that you have or the thought that pops into your head with, with that experience? Just enormous pride. And it's also, it's also something I've learned to see as completely separate from me. Um, the way in which the world has responded to that is like, that's it's, it's I, I imagine it's like if you have a kid and it goes on to some kind of a like, it's like, the, I didn't know the kid could do that. And I didn't know people would respond to the kid in that way. Um, but for me, what I try to take from it is what I've learned from it. You know, I learned every day on that was learning how to compress story and when to flash through time and when to sit in time. Um, and, and it has the most extremes of anything I've ever worked on. It has songs that encompass a hundred years and it has songs that sit in a moment in real time and really kind of how music can make time elastic. That's, that's my big takeaway from my work on Hamilton. That's like what I learned how to do it was really empowering going into Moana meetings being like I can do this in one verse (laughs) (laughs) these three scenes you're writing I've learned how to do it um because there wasn't anything on that scale uh in in heights even though I'm incredibly proud of heights just the um the elasticity of of playing with time I learned on on Hamilton is something I, I I bring with me to the subsequent projects. I think it's a sign of when it works where you don't question it as an audience that there's a manipulation with time or there's a stretch of time or there's a jump in time. You only question it when it doesn't work, and you never <laughs> it, it doesn't even come into your thought process when you're watching right. Hamilton because it's because you're on the journey. You know, you're yeah. there. You're you're in the story. You know what else I learned? I, you know, one of the truisms that you will learn in any musical theater class is like the opening numbers where you teach the audience the rules of how to watch your musical. And that is very true. But what I learned on Hamilton is every song is an opportunity to expand those rules and change those rules if need be. So like opening number of Hamilton, everyone's the fucking narrator. You don't know who they are until the very last second when they put on their 
sort of uh, colored clothes and you go, yeah. okay, that's Burr, that's this one, that's mm-hmm. this one. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned Our man saw his future drip, dripping down the train Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain the word got around and said this kid is insane man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland get your education don't forget from whence you came and the world's gonna know your name what's your name man alexander hamilton but then you know on helpless and satisfied we go we reserve the right to play with time and we're gonna rewind if we need to rewind um, on 10 dual commandments, we go, you have to understand how this weird fucking thing worked. Um, this was way more normal than it seems. These are not crimes of passion. They were highly ritualized. So that by the time you get to the end of the thing, you can throw all the rules at them. And it's all fair game. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the 10 dual commandments. It's the 10 dual commandments. Number one. Challenge, demand satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two, if they don't, grab a friend, that's your second. Your lieutenant, when there's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three, have your seconds meet face to face. Negotiate a or negotiate a time and place. This is commonplace, especially between recruits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. Number four, if they don't reach a peace, that's alright. Time to get some pistols and the doctor on site. You pay him in advance, you treat him with civility. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. I really brought that with me into Tick Tick Boom of like every song is an opportunity to reestablish a contract with the audience. So mm-hmm. in the opening number, we see a, a number being performed for us live on stage, but we hit that chorus and we reserve the right to break into song into Jonathan's world. Oh, this is the world according to Jonathan Larson. And you can see him both realistically in the Strand, and then you see people singing back up in the Strand. We, we reserve the right to do both the things because Jonathan's our very unreliable musical theater narrator. And then with, again, with every song expanding that, um, with Sunday, I'm going to make the Sunday of my dreams. With Play Game, I'm a terrible rapper. So here's Black Thought so doing the song I did. <laughs> but again, like using every song to push on what we're allowed to do. So it never feels like you're breaking the contract with the audience. We're just continually nudging and expanding our relationship with the audience. Well, that's a great example, um, you know, play game, because I love how you've you've interpreted things and how you've, you know, in terms of, of it being a feature film version of it, of, you know, how you how it goes into that MTV. It's the music video. It's so clever. <laughs> it's so and brilliant. I had, I had so much fun doing that, that people, that my, crew was making fun of me. It was like, why do we have five days of filming 
on this minute and 30 second song. I was like, well, because we got to do the superimpose, we got to do, you know, there's so many looks I wanted to get in that 90s music video to me, for me to film the ideal 1990 rap music video was so much fun that at one point Black Thought, uh, Tariq looked at me and was like, thanks for five days of coverage on a one minute song, man. This is a lot of fun. Walk through Times Square and what do you see? Ugliness where architecture used to be. The glamour and style have been replaced by God. Like the $60 spectacle, it's all a fraud. That's the play game. That's the play game. So why do I want to play the play game? That's the play game. That's the play game. I must be insane to play the play game. Even off-Broadway, it's no guarantee that some NBA won't decide what you see. Just like America lacking innovation. Just getting by on glitz and reputation. Just like America on the decline. I'm concerned with the product, just the bottom line. Right for the movies, right for TV. So what if it's crap? At least you won't write for free. Make thousands of dollars for a first draft. Your life won't depend on whether Frank Rich laughed. So just forget Shakespeare, Beck, and Molière. That's the play game. 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 Why do I care? Uh, how was your directorial debut experience for you? It was incredibly joyous and incredibly challenging, incredibly joyous because I felt uniquely equipped to tell this story. And I knew what I knew. And I hired a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me for what I didn't know uh, in terms of my incredible creative team. And that's everyone from Alice, my director of photography, to Alex DiGirlando, who literally recreated my... 1990 Village, New York, uh, for the look of our film. And incredibly challenging because they're always challenging and multiply that by a pandemic and multiply that by quarantine and testing pre-vaccine. Um, you know, we filmed September through November of last year. Um, wow. And to pull off some of these sequences, you know, we there were days where I actually had to quarantine the entire crew. And it was to Netflix's credit, they they, the money was not an object when it came to the safety of our crew. And, you know, we never had a slowdown. We never had a, a sick person during uh, that filming from September through November. Um, and I'm really proud of that because we took our protocols super seriously. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to directing the next movie without a mask and a face shield on. Because um, <laughs> I had to direct without my face. And that's hard. I have a very expressive face. I like to use it. <laughs> you know what's next? What's next is the longest nap I've ever taken in my life. You deserve it. (laughs) Um, So I know the first two weeks of January, my wife and I are gently handing my kids to my parents and we are getting uh, just away. And, you know, I have a really smart lawyer wife who has had to hold down the fort because the pandemic crashed so many of my projects into this year. So I'm going to be doing a lot of tucking in and doctor's visits and uh, being a house husband for basically all of next year. And um, and then seeing what ideas pop up, because I is the first time I have a clear desk in a very long time. I think that seeing, you know, I, I remember, I think the first musical that I, musical film that I saw was was West Side Story. Um, and, and one that I, I can watch again and again and again and again and again, you know, and it still feels Agreed. like the first time that I'm watching it. It's just there is, for me, there's something magical about that particular film. And I don't know what it is. It's just it's got this kind of connection um, that I've I've made. And 
I think that seeing a, a musical theatre on screen, uh, for it to work, it's just got to have something really, really special to it. And I think Tick, Tick, Boom does that because it has this realism to it and nothing feels like it's not there for a reason and the clever use of your interpretation of things and the transitions of different styles. And I just think you've done an amazing job. Thank you so much. Well, Westside was enormous, was seismic for me too. I was it? watching it in sixth grade. I was cast as Bernardo in the sixth grade play. So I rented the movie and watched it with my mom. I mean, and again, like it starts with this insane overhead shot of New York City and zooms in on where we're going to go. So you're in the real world. Like here we are, you can hear the chopper <laughs> doing the shots. And and then we go from there into like again, that we, whistle. we've now yeah, and we've got we've traversed into into the heightened world of, of our movie. It's 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 about as good as it can be done. So yeah, so I mean that that thank you, thank you very much for that. Listen, thank you for your time, Lin Mama. It's a real honor to get to chat to you. And thank you for earlier as well for your inspiring answers to all those wonderful students as well. It was it was so, so, so great. And um, have a great holiday. Have a great Christmas as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been so great. Boom. That's Green Green Dress, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Lynn Manuel Miranda. My huge thanks to Lynn Manuel for taking the time to talk to us. Encanto is on general release in the UK from the 24th of November, while Tick Tick Boom is available to watch on Netflix right now and I would highly recommend both of those. Encanto is one of those things that you can watch with four generations of the family and Tick Tick Boom I'm really looking forward to watching it again with my 13 year old I just think it's an absolutely beautiful wonderful emotional and stunningly executed production head to edithbowman.com to listen to all of our previous episodes of the podcast and to find links to Spotify playlists for every show Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you get a moment. We would be so grateful if you could take the time to do that. Now, coming up uh, next week on our kind of final week of double shots of Soundtracking, we have Jared Leto talking House of Gucci and Ikea shelving. I kid you not. But before that, I'm so excited about my dear friend Reggie Yates who has written and directed his first feature film. It's called Pirates. It's coming out on the 26th of November in cinemas. If you are at all interested in even one song uh, as part of the UK garage scene, you are going to love this film. He has made something absolutely brilliant. I'm so excited for him. He is next week's guest. Join me on Monday for an episode with Reggie Yates. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm -hmm.